It's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, my daughter's a freshman. Um, everything I thought I knew about parenting and college ministry is getting turns on its head right now because my daughter's one of those now, and so it's pretty wild. Uh, I love that I get to run into her on campus and that she hunts me down, but it's, it's weird, and I'm relearning a lot, so pray for us. Um, I forgot to do this this morning. I want to bring you greetings from Manhattan Presbyterian Church and Pastor Brian Huff. He asked me to remind you that the Astros won the World Series in case you weren't paying attention. Um, Pastor Brian and his wife are from Houston, and he wears bright orange whenever he can, and he asked me to remind you of that, but they do send their greetings. Um, I want to thank you for your support of our work financially and through prayer. Um, I'm going to be telling this story for a long time, but we, just briefly, um, a, a grad student in electrical engineering who's from Iran, um, she did her undergraduate training in Iran, showed up at one of our women's Bible studies this semester because she saw a poster on the wall in somewhere around campus, and then she traced, she tracked us down on Instagram, found out, should, showed up, like people don't show up to small groups like randomly like this, if they're going to show up to anything, it'll be not that. She showed up to that. She's been there off and on. This past week, I don't think she's a believer, by the way. Um, she showed up at our prayer meeting this past week that we just started on Thursday um, and offered up, asked us to pray for her home country. There's a lot of turmoil and unrest in Iran right now, and there has been for a couple months. Um, she asked us to pray for her mom and her sister who are there for women and for life and for freedom. And it was sobering, to say the least, to be in that room and pray with her and, and hear her say that. Someone gave her a Bible. Um, she regularly will take pictures of what she's reading in her Bible and post it on the group chat that we have, and she'll ask, what does this mean? And I don't have, a, I don't have to answer because our students are jumping in and saying, well, I think it means this, and you see this here. And so I can't plan that stuff. And stuff like that happens because y'all are praying, and I mean that in all seriousness. And so please continue to pray for our work. Um, on the, in, the, in the lobby area, there's a table with some stuff on it. Um, if you don't have my contact information, I'd love for you to do that. There's little envelopes like this with a picture of our family that's a touch dated but still helps. Um, if that would help you remember to pray for us, would you take one of these and stick it in your Bible or pin it somewhere, put it on a fridge or something? And just pr pray for us, please. And there's other ways to contact me there if you're interested, but just please grab one of those uh, before you leave today. It's my privilege now to open up God's Word with you this morning, and so I want to turn your attention to Acts chapter 2. We're going to consider verses 42 through 47. One of the great ironies of campus life, even pre-COVID, is that a place like K-State has 20,000 undergraduate students, all within about an age range of about 18 to 23, so roughly five years. And what's fascinating about life on a college campus that many have pointed out is that is that even though you're in this place where there's tons going on and there's tons of people your age, it's still, students are still desperately lonely. It's been called an epidemic even in the last few years. How, how much a struggle it is for there to be things happening and no shortage of people to connect with and yet students are desperately lonely. I talked with a girl this week who said she walked into a large meeting room where she knew people, and she knew that she was surrounded by people that she knew and it was a safe place, and yet she said, I just felt overwhelmingly lonely. And that's not uncommon. But you all know that feeling too. We have neighbors, we have coworkers, we have people that we're in contact with on a daily basis, we have friends and family members, and yet, Community is something that we still struggle with. We want to reduce community to something like proximity, to say, well, I, I'm near people, so therefore I have people in my life and I have relationships and therefore I have community. We want to reduce it to activity, to say, well, I'm, doing this, I'm in the sports leagues with my neighbors and my kids' friends and we're around each other, we're doing the same stuff all the time. We have community. 
We think of community in terms of similarity. There are people like me in my life. They spend their money like me. They spend their time like me. We do the same things for fun. They're like me. They get me, surely. And yet, we find ourselves still desperately lonely. It's the reality of the struggle of community. What we need is we need Jesus to reshape that for us, to, to, to equip us, to guide us, and to take us somewhere where we're not yet. I think that's what's happening in this passage in the book of Acts. Acts is, tells the story, the, the, if, you're a, if you remember Paul Harvey, the radio guy from years ago, Acts tells you the rest of the story, right? What happens after Jesus rose from the dead. And it tells you the work of Jesus as his message spreads. And the beauty of it is that's exactly what it is. It's not, it's not a, a process for self-help. Acts is not like, this is the, these are the steps you need to follow to do this. Acts is telling us what happens when Jesus' is Lord is proclaimed everywhere and lives get changed. So here now as we read from Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 42, I'll read through verse 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we consider these things together. Merciful, gracious, holy God, we need you to send out your light and your truth. We don't have it within ourselves to fix, to fix the messes that we've made. We don't have it within ourselves to strategize enough or save enough. And so we ask that your truth would come to us by your Spirit. Take us to the place where you are, to your altar, to the place that we might see you through your word, that we might know you, and indeed we might be changed. We cry out for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The show, a series I watched a few years ago called Mayor of Easttown. It's about a woman who's the police chief in the town that she grew up in. She is dearly loved and appreciated and respected in her town because everyone knows her. In fact, there are several scenes early on in the character development where what we see is she gets, she gets phone calls from random friends of her family's because they need help of a police officer. Well, she's not a patrol car police officer, and she could have dismissed it, but these people call her because they know her and they trust her. We learned in the show is that one of the burdens that she bears is that as a high school student, her, she was on the basketball team, she was the star of the basketball team that was the last team from her high school to win the state tournament. And so there's, there's an episode where they're actually having the, the team come back out on, on during one of the, the, the current high school games. They have them come out on the court and they want to acknowledge the 20 or 25th year anniversary of, of that, that event. And you can tell that every fiber of her being does not want to be there. She wants to be anywhere but in that place celebrating that accomplishment. And in commenting on it, she says this. She says, doing something great is overrated because then people expect that all the time. What they, don't realize that, what they don't realize is that you're just as messed up as they are. Aside from the difficulty of loneliness in community, that's the pressure of community. What she's articulating is this thought that says, I did this accomplishment, I did this great thing, but now I have to kind of maintain that. 
And I don't like that burden. I don't like that weight because that's all people want to see me as is this one thing. And I have to carry this weight of living up to who they think I am when they have no idea the mess that my life is. We, we know that pressure, don't we? We know that reality. Now, in the text before us, this may seem like a disconnect, but stay with me for a minute. In, in the text before us, there are great things that are happening, right? I mean, think about it. There are miracles. People's lives are being changed. Needs are being met. They're celebrating and praising God for His kindness and His faithfulness. The people are meeting needs of one another, and their lives are being changed. But what's happening in the text, the other side of it is it's something that's actually very ordinary. It's not the piling on of like, you all have to keep the miracles happening. You all have to keep doing this. What it's picturing for us is the work of God in very basic, ordinary kinds of ways. And what's happening is God is shaping, Jesus is shaping this community, not based on what we can accomplish, on what we do, but what He's doing through some very simple things. I want us to wrestle this morning with what does it look like for us to actually live in community, to embrace the community that Jesus is making, and to let Him shape, to, to, to seek His shaping of our lives. As we do that, the starting point is, is simply to say this. Living in a Christian community is, begins, the foundation level, it's a call to commitment. It's, it's the, this basic reality of commitment. Look with me again at the text. Look at verse 42 and notice what he says. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the they here, we read in the previous section, are those who heard the message that Jesus is Lord. They were cut to the heart. They said, what can we do to be saved? And the answer is repent and believe. And they believe. They embraced the message of Jesus. And this is where it drew them. It drew them together and shaping them like this. But what we read in this text is that they were devoted, that they devoted themselves. They persisted stubbornly in something outside of themselves is what that literally means. That they persisted stubbornly, that they looked with patience and they committed to something not themselves, something outside of themselves. They devoted themselves. They persisted stubbornly. And what was the focus of their persistence? Notice where he goes. The first thing he tells us is that they're devoting themselves to God's Word. He tells us the apostles' teaching. These were those that were speaking on the basis of, based on the authority of Jesus that was given to, the, given to them by Him. They were set apart to lead His people. This is the commitment to listen, to learn, to grow, to be changed, to submit yourself to someone else's Word, to the Word of God itself is part of this commitment. He adds to that that they were also committed to God's people. They were committed, it says in the text in verse 42, to the fellowship, which basically means the shared life, which, if, which basically means they were in the same place at the same time together. They were willing to spend time together as part of this commitment. Notice what he adds to that. He adds to that this thought that they were committed, to, they devoted themselves to God's provision. The phrase there in verse 42 is that they're, they're committed, to, devoted to the breaking of bread. Now later in our text, around verse 46, it's going to describe and talk about what sounds like the sharing of meals in one another's homes, which is part of this provision. But in verse 42, we get the sense that he, he may be talking about the shared communion, the breaking of bread that we're going to do in, in, within a few minutes of now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 
all of this is the acknowledgement that God is the one who provides for us. The very life that we have comes from God. Our, our faith in Jesus was not our creation. It's not something that we willed to happen. It's something that had to be given to us. We had to be brought to life. And we celebrate God's provision together. And lastly, there's a, there's a devotion to God's work. We read there that they devoted themselves to the prayers. They regularly prayed together as a part of this commitment to one another. Think about that for a minute. It makes sense, right, that to talk about community, we have to talk about commitment. Because in this day and age, when things get rough, when something happens that we don't like, we can jet. Like, we can just leave and not have to deal with the thing that we don't like and go find something else somewhere until that doesn't work and then that doesn't work and then that doesn't work. That's our culture. We can go anywhere and connect anywhere that we want at any point. That's not community. That's you trying to get an itch scratched. That's not community. What Jesus is transforming in us is this thought of commitment to one another. I think about what in my day and age we called Star Wars, which nowadays it's episode four or A New Hope, but we just called it Star Wars because that's what it was. And at the end of the movie, when, when Han Solo has received the money that the prince has promised him for getting her to the place that she wanted to go, he's loading up into the Millennium Falcon, he's taken off, and he and Luke have this conversation. And Luke says to him, come on, why don't you take a look around? You know what's about to happen, what we're up against. They could use a good pilot like you. You're turning your back on, the, on them. They're about to go try to destroy the Death Star, and it's a fool's errand, and Han Solo knows it, and he says this. He says, what good is a reward if you're not around to spend it? Besides, attacking that battle station isn't my idea of courage. It's more like suicide. And Luke's response to him is this. All right, well, take care of yourself then. I guess that's what you're best at, isn't it? I mean, that's anti-community. It's saying, look, I want to spend the money that I've got, so I'm going to go do that, and I can't worry about this other stuff because I'm going to get killed if I try it. And Danny takes off. Thankfully, he comes back and we have the rest of the movie series. But the reality is, we we know that tension, right? Like, this is going to cost me something. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But it's this idea that we can just take off. That's not community. We have to be honest, y'all, that what we love is we love the immediate, the exciting, the convenient. We want the uncommitted thrill, not of a relationship, but of a one-night stand. And what this is picturing for us is the opposite of that. And we have to be honest with ourselves that we want to chase after something that, that we'll never fulfill because that's what's before us. To be committed to God's Word is a commitment to give your attention to something outside of yourself. It's a commitment to turn off the noise in your life, at least for a time, and to sit and actually listen. To be committed to God's people is is the commitment of time and energy and emotion. To be committed to God's provision is actually a commitment to your own humility, to face your pride that says, I got this, I can take care of it myself. To be committed to God's work in a strange way is is to commit to a hunger for things to be different knowing that you can't affect the change that you long for. This is what we're invited to. Two of our small groups, two or three of our small groups this semester are working through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And it's been interesting to be in conversation with students about those this semester. I want to talk about 
that last idea of committing to God's work specifically here. In Colossians 4, I was in a small group this past week, and, and we read this verse, 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, all, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And the small group leader asked the room of us, she said, uh, she said, who do you struggle with in prayer? And I thought to myself, wow, I struggle with prayer. I struggle to slow down and pray. I struggle to pray for any period of time sometimes because I'm easily distracted and I can't sit still. But what's set before us is a call to actually struggle in prayer for someone else. That's part of commitment, to pray. And then in another conversation I had on on the same book, in Colossians 1.9, we read this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And a freshman woman in the room pointed this out. She said, that's really interesting because the context of Colossians 1 is that things at the church in Colossae are going great. They're bearing fruit. Their lives are being changed by the gospel. They're, they're growing in their knowledge of God and increasing. Things are, are where we would want them to be for a young church. And this girl pointed out, she said, it's interesting that things are going well and that spurs him to pray more. We tend to think, if things are going well, why should we pray? We've got to pray for the stuff that's hard, that's not going well. But the example of Scripture is that we would pray for growth, pray for maturity, pray that, that the good things would continue to go on. And, and hear, hear me say this loud and clearly. I'm not throwing shade on, on praying for our needs. Scripture is absolutely clear that we are to bring all of our needs before the Father and that He is able and willing and ready to listen. When things are not going well, we can cast all of it on him, and he wants us to do that. He commands us to do that. And yet there's more. To pray for growth together, to pray for, to pray for those, those folks that seem to be doing well, that, that it would continue on, that they would know God's blessing and God's faithfulness, they'd be protected from harm. That together we as a church would grow in the knowledge of God, and it would transform us. Beloved, this is the commitment that we're called to, that Jesus is working out in us. This is commitment. This is the starting point. But notice what happens, and maybe we're going to get a little increasingly uncomfortable as we read. Because notice what, if we dig a little deeper, notice what life together looks like. Look at verses 44 and 45 with me. It says in 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Then verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Community is about a call to commitment, but it's also about a call to sacrifice. That sacrifice here took the form of sharing. They were together and had all things in common. Now hear me, the point here is not a question about whether or not it's right to own private property. That's not the question that the disciples were asking in the first century. The picture is we're in community Somebody has a need, he can use what I have to, 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 do, to, use, to meet that need. If you need a hammer and I have a hammer, I'm going to let you use my hammer. Very simple terms. It's this picture of saying we belong to one another and we are sharing life together. That's the picture that's there. But then verse 45 gets a little bit more uncomfortable, right? Because verse 45 says... If, if, if I have a hammer and you need a hammer, you can, you, can, you can use my hammer. But it also says that what they did was, if I have a table saw, I can sell my table saw if you need the money to help to, to cover whatever you need to cover. 
Like that's the picture that's given for us, which is unsettling for us. Because it means the stuff that we have, we're actually selling to get rid of because other people have needs around us. The call to community is a call to sacrifice. It's not simply about your needs and your wants. It's something more than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, uh, if you don't know the name, you probably do, but he was a theologian and pastor in the early part of the 20th century. He was German by, by birth, and he struggled against the Nazi regime for most of his public ministry and his adult ministry. And at one point in time, he, he, he had founded Underground Seminary, and from the experience of that, he wrote this book called Life Together about community. And in that book, he writes this. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Listen to this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. When we look at community and say, I have my ideal, this is what I want community to look like, and we are committed to our dream, it's going to destroy the reality of that community is what he's saying. Because it's about sacrifice. Because it's about sacrifice. This is unsettling for us. I want to acknowledge that. Because sacrifice means it's going to cost you. It will, you'll give up something. Think about what, is, what's, what community is going to cost you. And you may know some of these realities. It's going to cost you time and money. It's going to cost you sleep. Because you may get a phone call from somebody in this room who needs your help at an inconvenient time for you. It's going to cost you a clean house. It's going to cost you peace and quiet. It's going to cost you awkwardness because that's just how it works, to have conversations you don't want to have about topics that you don't want to talk about publicly. But that's part of community. It's going to cost you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What I tell my students all the time is love is defined by sacrifice. Where that translates in college ministry is, if he says he loves you, it's got to cost him something. If she says she loves you, it's going to cost her something. That's community for us. If we say we love our neighbor, if we want to understand what that means, you have to know it's going to cost you. Living in community where we offend one another means we've got to learn to forgive one another, which is a costly endeavor. It's one that, that can actually happen because the gospel is true, because you have been forgiven, and that leads you there, but we have to acknowledge it. Community is a call to sacrifice as much as it's a call to commitment. But look at the last two verses and notice where this lands. Look at verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and giving, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What he's telling us is this. Ultimately for us as God's people, the call to community is a call to God himself because it's a call to worship. 
It's what we see in those last two verses. They're acknowledging everything that they have comes from God. They're acknowledging with generous hearts and glad hearts that God has given us what we've needed to be sustained today. We've prayed already in the service, give us today our daily bread. That's part of this same deal, that there's a call to see God in everything and to live lives of worship. These things point us to God who provides for us all. But let's not overlook again verse 46 because this, this time in worship is time spent together in worship. This is a public activity. It's done with one another. Yes, worship is a matter of the heart. And yes, it's right for us to spend time reading Scripture on our own and with our families in the privacy of our homes. And yet there's something irreplaceable about being here with God's people together to see one another, to bump into one another, to live life together. Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Pretty sure that you there is y'all. Let it dwell among you richly. How can we do that if we're not together? But if we're together, let's let it be about God and his faithfulness. I simply want to ask you this. Are you serving others in worship? Or are you making it more difficult for others to be in worship? Is worship something that we actually do together, or is it really about me and my time with Jesus and there just happens to be other people around at the time when this is happening? There's a place for us to ask ourselves, how can I serve the people in a different station in life from me? Are, are there folks here who have, who have issues with hearing or seeing, and, and I can do something to help that so that they can enter into worship more faithfully? Are there people with kids that, that, that I can serve in the nursery, that I can serve in Sunday school or children's church? Are there ways that I can, I can help people physically get here because it may be tough for them to get out of the house in the morning? And I'm not saying any of this because I don't think any of you all are doing any of this. I simply want to put before us what this looks like and what it, make, what it calls us to. Are we entering into worship together and pursuing God together? This is the call of commitment. A number of years ago, you may remember the TV show Seinfeld. It was famously called the show about nothing because it was this random collection of events and it was about Jerry Seinfeld and his three friends and the weird life they led together and kind of the way they interacted. Um, it, was, it, it was part of Thursday Night Television when Thursday Night Television was a thing because television was a thing, um, which is different now. Um, but sometime later, after the show became a big hit, one of the producers was interviewed and he, he said he described what he calls the two rules of Seinfeld. No hugging and no learning. That's what made the show what it was. We don't want our characters to be emotionally connected with each other. We don't want any kind of vulnerability happening and when it does, we're gonna end it quickly. And we don't want anybody, we don't want anybody to grow or change. And as a, as a matter of fact, the way the show ended, the final dialogue of the show, of the, when the, season, when the, the series ended, was taken from the first episode of the, of, of the, pilot, the first part of the pilot episode. As if to say, see, nobody grew, nobody changed, nobody hugged. We're all just the way we were. And, and I tell you that because that's the opposite of what this is about. Because ultimately, we have to know that living in community is about change. Living in community is about facing what you don't want to face in your own life and in other people's lives. And it's about walking together in a way that will cost you and it will be uncomfortable. But beloved, what I want you to know more than anything else, in the midst of this call, in the midst of this picture of community, 
that what's, what we have to know is that Jesus is more committed to you than you will be to him. And that he is committed to making you more like him. In fact, his commitment drove him to the cross to sacrifice everything. That's why Paul can say, learn to love by sacrificing because Jesus sacrificed for you. But it's not simply an example. It's, that's where we find the power. That's where we find the ability. That's where we find the new life. It's in Jesus, that the life that he gives us. Because without him, we can't do this. And yet with him, there's actually hope. And we need to know that Jesus is committed to the will of God in ways that we will never understand in this life because of where it took him. That's the hope that we have, beloved, is that Jesus is enough to lead you there, to take you there, and to shape you. And that's what he's doing. Beloved, consider the commitment. Consider the sacrifice. Consider God himself. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, by your mercy and by your grace, this is what you're doing in us. And even as we resist and even as we struggle, Father, I pray that, that you would grow in us an honesty to face our weakness, an honesty to face what we need in you, and that you would renew us with your spirit. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of response is...